want to encourage you now to turn in your Bible. So the book of Revelation, it is the last book in the Bible. It is a unique book, a book filled with prophecy regarding the future. It is the only book in the scriptures that begins and ends with a blessing to those who would read it. The book of Revelation, written by John, the John who was exiled to the island of Patmos for preaching the gospel. And as you know, we have been looking at the subject of the church ever since the church family retreat, the subject of the church. What kind of church does God want us to be? And here we will begin in Revelation chapter 2, looking at the seven churches of Revelation. Seven churches of Revelation and God's evaluation of the church. God's evaluation of the church. And we begin here in Revelation chapter 2, verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance, and that you cannot tolerate evil men, and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not. And you found them to be false, you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first, or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Let's bow in prayer before we begin our study this morning. Our Father, once again, we pray that you would open the eyes of our heart, that we might see great and mighty things which we do not yet know. In your precious Son's name we pray. Amen. As I mentioned, we've been covering the subject of the church, what God desires of his church, how God evaluates his church. When God evaluates a church, it is wholly different than how we oftentimes evaluate a church. We often look at how the music is, the style of music, whether or not they have a dress code, the number of programs they have, perhaps the amount of offering they receive, perhaps the size or the church facility or whatever it might be. We evaluate the church on various criteria that we have. And yet when we look at the biblical context of these seven churches, it is a context where Christ writes or she speaks to these seven churches. And they provide for us a profile of what God thinks of the church and how he evaluates a church. And here in this context, just so you know, these are seven real churches that existed in history. Some people had believed that they were periods of history. The church was uh, like Ephesus in the beginning, but now we're living in the Laodicea and the lukewarm period. But these are seven 
churches, actual churches. They are not seven eras of time. They are not seven periods of time in church history. And so when we look at this profile of the first church and each church subsequently hereafter, we see God's evaluation of each of these churches. And we can evaluate not only our lives, but we can evaluate our church and other churches or whatever it might be. And so we see in this context things that God commends about the church and things that God condemns in a church. We see what God is pleased in a church and what displeases God. And so here in this particular context, it is written and each letter is written to an angel. It says, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write verse 1. And that particular word, just so you know, is the same word that's used for messenger, angelos. It's used for any messenger, a messenger by which uh, the letter is written to. And so some interpreters would believe that perhaps this would be perhaps the pastor or the church leader or the human leader rather than an angelic being as this is sometimes rendered as an angel. And one of the number of the reasons that are given for that particular viewpoint is that the New Testament never, 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 never teaches that angels are involved in the leadership of a church. And secondly, because some of these letters, five of the seven contain condemnations Well, holy angels cannot sin and repentance is not needed and yet repentance is called because of sin in five of the seven of these churches. And and Robert Thomas says that if this particular, he's a commentator, uh, he says that this particular interpretation meant angel, you would have some type of anomaly where God would be writing and he'd tell John, who's a human agent, to convey to an angelic being his condemnation of a human institution or a God's institution of the church, which would seem a little bit odd. So perhaps it's better to see this as the messenger or the pastor or some type of leader in the church, which is how I tend to view it. But whatever you view it as, it is a message to this first church. And the first church is the church at Ephesus. And this church could be called the church which lost its first love. The church which lost its first love. That's how you could characterize this first church. Years ago, Air Canada, had, they took a delivery of four 767s from Boeing. New jumbo jets. They were the pride of the fleet. This was a number of years ago, back when they came out. And that was a big, big deal, especially in Canada until Flight 143 flew on one Monday morning from Montreal to Edmonton. It was a 2,000-mile flight. The fuel gauge wasn't working, so what they did was they, they took, of course, the, the, by their own standards and whatnot, they were able to take whatever the fuel was from the, those refuelers that came by. Midway through the flight, this jumbo jet's engines had simply stopped. Nobody really noticed. Most of the people didn't because they were all watching a movie at that time. Until, of course, the captain came on air and announced that they would be making an emergency landing. The reason why was because the person who had filled up the tank on the airliner, had, it was supposed to have 26,000 pounds or so of fuel, ran out 800 miles short of their destination because the person who was refueling the airplane had confused pounds with kilograms and so they had run out of fuel. 
They had all the right equipment. They had all the right personnel. They had all the right training manuals. They had everything on board that they needed but the fuel. And by the grace of God, the pilot from his military days knew of an old airfield landing strip by which they managed to glide and land and damage the plane badly, but they managed to keep everyone alive in that accident. And I think a lot of Christians are like that. I think a lot of Christians are like that. Maybe you were like that once. You came to know the Lord and you were very excited about Christ. You were excited to go to church. You were excited about fellowship. You had new friends. You could go to Bible study and everything was fresh and new and you could learn. And it was, you would all take it in and, and you'd love learning. Even every new story in the Bible, every lesson that you learned was something fresh. You had everything, the right tools, the right context, the nice Bible study perhaps, a nice fellowship group, supportive friends or whatever it might be. But then later on, it just began to run out of steam. You began to run out of steam and you find that now it's some sort of a routine now. It's more of a routine and there's no, there's no excitement. There's no passion in the Christian life. I see a lot of Christians like that. Once in a while, I see it in myself, in my own heart. The question is, why do Christians become like that? And maybe you've been like that for a long, long time. And that's very few things excite you. And when they excite you, they just tend to flounder. And then you're back into the old pattern again. Yes, you go to a retreat. And after the retreat, you're all excited. And after that, well, it kind of winds on down. Or whatever it might be. And there's this lack of joy as a pattern in your life. Or a lack of excitement. Or a lack of enthusiasm for the things of God. It just becomes more or less routine and you drift off into thinking, well, maybe this is a better deal here. I'll read such and such. And you just become involved to fill that empty void that you might have in your heart. That was the case with these Ephesians, the church at Ephesus, the city. Some, but it was about the half the size of Seattle. It was a large city, especially in that time. Self-governing city, major city in in Asia Minor, along with the seven other cities, seven other churches that these will these letters will go to. But it was a self-governing city with no Roman garrison there. But the big thing was it was the home of the temple of Artemis, one of the ancient seven wonders of the world. It was an idolatrous temple. But the city of Ephesus served as one of the major financial institutions in Asia Minor. And they had all sorts of people who would do business because it was right by the Mediterranean Sea there. All sorts of people would come. There were priests, there were prostitutes, there were bankers, there were criminals, there were musicians, dancers, there were wild worshippers. This was a huge temple. This was a major, major, major site. And in the midst of all of this, Paul goes to this city on one of his missionary journeys. And there, Priscilla and Aquila, two of his comrades, come and they began to start the church there. And they're joined a little bit later on by a man named Apollos, whom the Bible says, the Bible says that he was mighty in the scriptures. And they laid the foundation for the church. They laid the foundation for the church, teaching and strengthening the believers there. And he spent some three years there in Ephesus on his third missionary journey. And his impact upon that city was profound. 
It was profound because there were converts coming, coming to know Christ. And in Acts chapter 19, it tells us that the people who came one day, they decided to burn all of their, all of their uh, books and all of their uh, uh, idols and all of their paraphernalia or whatever it was. And it amounted to some 50,000 pieces of silver. That is about 50,000 days of wages. And that is how much Ephesus was not only steeped in magic, but it was the massive numbers of people that were coming to Christ and being converted due to Paul's ministry there in Ephesus. So it was major. The conversion of people, though, caused economic distress. There was a man named Demetrius there. And Demetrius was one of these, um, you know, uh, silversmiths. And he was, uh, him and his uh, fellow craftsmen said, look, in, in Acts 19, he says, look, men, you know that our prosperity depends on, upon this business. You see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, Paul has persuaded and turned a considerable number of people saying that gods made with hands are no gods at all. In other words, these people were coming to Christ and burning their idols. And what would happen? Of course, these silversmiths, they made idols. They made idols, so they were losing business. So they started a riot. They started a riot, and all of Asia and the world would would hear about this. Because of the riot, Paul was forced to leave. He was forced to leave the city of Ephesus. That had been some 40 years earlier in the time that this letter was written. Because after Paul came and Apollos preached and then a young man named Timothy would come and pastor the church and Paul would encourage him, hey, don't shy away, don't back off. These are the things that you need to teach. Remind them of these things. You be faithful. And then, 40 years later, this is Christ's evaluation of the church. And he begins with a commendation. Verse 2. It says, I know your deeds, your toil and perseverance. You cannot tolerate evil men. And you put to test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not. And you found them to be false, and you have perseverance and endured for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Christ commends them on a number of things, three in particular. First of all, he commends this particular church for being hardworking. It says they toiled. And it means to labor to the point of exhaustion. They gave everything to the ministry there. They were hard-working Christian folk. You know, in many churches, it's not like that. You know, in many churches, it's a, a small percentage of people who do the majority of the work. But here in this particular church, they were hard-working. They're commended for that. Serving God is using one's giftedness in the context of believers, and that's what we're to do. And my gifts and my whatever it might be, God has gifted everyone here to serve in the context, to serve other believers, to be an encouragement, to help out here and there. Whatever it might take, God has gifted each one of you to be special in that case. And we're to use our gifts diligently, and they were commended for their hardworking spirit. Secondly, they were commended for their perseverance. Persevering, that's what it says. And it means patience in difficult circumstances. Life wasn't easy there, especially in the heart of idolatry there. The temple of Artemis was a huge temple. It was, again, as I mentioned to you, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. But their motive in patience and perseverance was for his name's sake. 
It wasn't because of church pride. It wasn't because of, of not wanting to seem like a loser. It wasn't because of any ulterior motive. It was because God knew they were doing it. They were persevering for the sake of Christ. And they endured. And they did not grow weary. And they didn't succumb to cynicism or to ostracism. Or to discouragement. They endured because God's name was at stake. I don't know if you've ever noticed. But in the Old Testament as well as the New. How often it says that God desires that His name be made known. That His name would be made great. That God cares about His name. And they lived and they persevered for His name's sake. So not only were they hardworking and commended for that, not only were they persevering and commended for that, but they were commended for being discerning. Discerning. They were discretionary in whom they would teach. They were discretionary in whom they would teach. Earlier when I mentioned Paul had to leave because of a particular riot that would come in Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20, he he stands on the banks of the shore. You can picture it here. And the elders come out from the city. The elders of the church... And he tells them a goodbye. He tells them goodbye because he had ministered to them for a long time. And his care for them and his heart for them was deep. And he says in Acts 20, 28, he says this. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. And he continues on and says, After my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after themselves. Therefore, be on alert. These leaders, they knew the truth. They believed what was right. They were discriminating. They were discerning. They didn't let anybody in to do whatever they wanted to do. Even later on in verse 6 here in Revelation, it says, Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. Now, the Nicolaitans... Some think that perhaps it was one of the early seven deacons in Acts chapter 6 who went wayward or who was a false disciple and began to teach various things. Or some might say that it was the followers of one of those early deacons. But the Ephesian church knew and they hated, they hated the false teaching that would come in. I mean, they were commended, therefore, for the, their hard-working spirit. They were commended for being persevering, even when life was difficult. And they were commended for what? Being discerning, knowing what's true and what's false. But they were condemned. One thing against this particular church, verse 4. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Though they were diligent, though they endured, though they were doctrinally orthodox, they had a fatal flaw. They knew the mechanics of ministry. They knew how to do church and they were hard working at it. They knew how to make the church run smoothly. They knew what the truth was. They were doctrinally sound. But here they left their first love. It was their love for Christ and their love for God that was lacking. Their first love, the honeymoon was over for the church as a whole. The honeymoon was over and theirs was a, 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 a sterile, sort of a dead orthodoxy that can happen to people's lives. I remember when I first graduated from seminary, 
Some 12 years ago, I'd be gone on thinking that, boy, I've got a lot of things figured out. And, and one might think that once you finish seminary, you're all ready to go. But for myself, I remember myself, I, I was probably more bent out of shape than when I'd gone in. Because there were, the pressures were so great and the stress was so, so difficult sometimes that sometimes my own walk with the Lord during those times wasn't the best. And so I struggled, I remember, I was excited to do ministry, I was excited and ready to go, excited to get down to work, but it was my own self-sufficiency, rolling up my sleeves and just gritting my teeth to say, this is good, this is exciting, and yet my love and my relationship with the Lord wasn't necessarily the best in those days. And perhaps this might happen to you. If at first you, you, you think about your life, Think about your life in the past and what has it been for you? Your own passion for God has, has sort of dwindled. Or for others, maybe it's faded away. Maybe others have never really known much of it at all. Or maybe you now you're complacent or you're apathetic. Christ has a solution. The solution is in verse 4 and 5. He says, therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first. Or else I am coming to you and will move your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Three things he tells us here. Three things we're to do. If you struggle with apathy, if you struggle with complacency, you struggle with a life that really struggles and doesn't, doesn't really have a love for God that you know you want to have, or love for the Bible that you know is not there, First thing he tells you is to remember. He tells the church to remember. Remember from where you have fallen. Remember what it was like when you first became a Christian, how things were exciting. Everything was so new, exciting. Maybe your schedule has so become so busy now. Take some time to remember what it was like. Remember when Christ was at the center of your life. Remember when you made those commitments to say, I'm going to live for Christ and nothing is going to come between me and Him. Remember that, 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 that time when you were so encouraged just to be around other Christian friends because you could talk about the things of God. Or maybe it was even when you were in Sunday school, even as a little kid, you were always looking forward to going. Maybe remember how fulfilled you, you felt, even when you used to serve the Lord. You fulfilled, you felt, you volunteered your time, you made sacrifices for others. And at that time it didn't seem like a sacrifice. Or maybe you were a part of a group or accountability or a prayer group and you always met. And you had those friends who would support you and now you don't even meet anymore. You don't go to anything. Remember the days when you used to have that commitment. No Bible, no breakfast. Or no Bible, no studying. I remember those days when you would love to read. And an hour reading the Bible would seem like nothing. Time would fly by. Remember those days. Remember when you first came to know the Lord and how life had changed so radically. But now perhaps you're merely one who moves along this habit that has little excitement or passion for Christ. So take inventory, Christ says. Take inventory. Remember from where you have fallen, He says to this church. Secondly, He calls us to repent. To repent. Repentance means to change one's mind. It's not simply confessing to God. You know, there are some who say, well, if I just confess, you know, He'll forgive me. Yes, that's true. Confessing is agreeing with God. That's what confession means. 
We say, God, you know, forgive me. And some people even say it before they know they're going to sin. God, forgive me for having this, you know, Krispy Kreme donut. I know I shouldn't. And whatever it might be, they say, forgive me. And then they'll go ahead and indulge themselves. They, you know, repentance is not like that. Confession is like that. It's admitting that you are doing wrong or that you've done wrong. It's saying, God, I know I've done wrong. Repentance means I am determined, Lord, by your grace not to do it again. I'm going to do this instead. A lot of people say, yeah, I know I haven't been doing this or doing that. And they know they ought to do something. I don't know what it might be. Maybe it's some commitment that you've made in the past or whatever it might be. And you continually confess your sins, but you've never repented. You've never made a decision to say, you know what, today's the day. I know it's wrong. I'm going to stop doing it right now and I'm going to do this instead. That is a commitment of repentance. That is repentance, merely confessing. Doesn't, doesn't isn't what God is after here. He says, repentance, repent. It's more than simply that confessing. It's acknowledging our apathy even. Apathy to sin. Deciding we're no longer going to do that anymore. Maybe it's part of your family. Maybe there's something that your family does. You know your family shouldn't do it. You just say, well today, we're not going to do that anymore. Or today, I'm not going to do that anymore. Whatever it might be. There are a number of things that can cause and drain our passion. A number of things that can drain our love for God. Luis Palau in his book, quote, Say Yes, How to Renew Your Spiritual Passion, lists a number of things, and there are many more. He lists things like unconfessed sin, moral indifference, being absorbed with self, repeating gossip, harboring unbelief, an ungrateful spirit, feeling resentful, making petty complaints, neglecting giving, ignoring recurring sins, lacking true joy, engaging in sexual impurity, hanging on to bitterness, and so on. There are many things that we harbor and we think, oh, that's, that's a small thing. But I'll tell you, every small thing leads up to bigger compromises and every small thing takes away some of that passion from one's heart towards God. Maybe it's some area that in our life that we've never really ever surrendered to God. Maybe it's some idol in our life. Maybe it's some misplaced priority. And the question is, will we make it right today? Will we make it right today? God wants us to have a heart that loves Him above all else. A fully surrendered life. That's why there's no joy. That's why there's no peace. That's why there's sort of this blase in many Christians' lives. Because there's something there, perhaps. Something there that is between us and God. And God knows what it is. And He just wants you to come before Him and says, I know what it is, God. I know what it is. Grant to me the strength to turn and repent. Remember what it was like. And then secondly, to repent. And thirdly, He calls us to rekindle. Rekindle what we used to do. Do the deeds you did at first. Do the deeds you did at first. And what he's not talking about, he's not talking about roll up your sleeves and grit and get down to, 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 to you know, serving in church or whatever it might be. He's not talking about that. Do the deeds that you did at first that helped you to grow. Do the things that you did at first. Maybe it's a, for you, maybe it's, a, it's, it's a, to, 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 to be a part of a, of a group that will encourage you in the faith. Maybe it's simply uh, attending church every Sunday to begin with. Maybe it's some way in which you need to spend time with the Lord alone. 
Maybe you haven't done that in so long and there's always been this excuse of, well, I'm so busy with whatever it might be or I work in such and such place, that's why I don't really desire to share my faith or whatever it might be. The Lord knows what it is. Do the deeds that you did at first when you first came to know Christ and renew your relationship with God. Second Corinthians, Paul reminds us, don't be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. You know, sometimes I fear we've made it so complex. Our, our, our walk with Christ has become so complex. And yet there was a day when perhaps you would sit and, and, and sermons wouldn't be boring to you or you'd love to sing or you'd love to be a part of studying God's Word or whatever it might be. And you remember that. And you remember how fresh it was and how alive it was because you loved God and now something else has come and God wants to renew that relationship with you. For he says to this church, I'm coming to you and remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. The announcement is the announcement of judgment, the closure of that church. For there are simply ruins there, I believe, today. And there will be ruins there in your life. You're you're going this little step away from God. I'm just going to step away for a little while. I'm going to take a break from walking with God. I'm going to take a break from uh, worship or whatever it might be. I'm going to skip or whatever. And you know, sometimes those little things will lead to bigger and bigger things. And that passion, that love that you have known is gone. Why is it so serious to God? Why is it so serious to God? It's because of our relationship with Him. God loves us. And imagine if your son, many of you are parents, imagine if your son or your daughter comes to you. They say, Mom or Dad, you know, I've been feeling this way for a long time. I really want to tell you that I, I, don't, I, don't, I guess I don't really love you. Or maybe your spouse tells you that. I don't really love you. I'll come home and I'll eat with you and I'll live with you. And your heart is someplace else and the relationship is so sterile. That's exactly how it is with us and God. People come and they say, oh yeah, God, I'll come and I'll worship. That's your time, God. I'm committed to spending that time with you. But God, I really don't, I really don't love you anymore. I, I, I just... I do my duty for you, God. I give at my church. I pitch in, bring this, or I help out here and there. But the heart is not there. The heart is not there. And God desires that we be people who are persevering, who are hardworking, who are faithful, but love God. And say, you know what? So many things don't matter anymore. When I think of Ron Keenly, everything Everything in his whole world has changed because he's facing perhaps the end of his life. And what really matters has come into play. And he has a focus on God that matters and he is blessed by that. And he is grateful. He'll write me an email telling me how grateful he is for what has happened. Because it has changed his life. What does God have to do for you to change your perspective? Does he have to cut out the legs from underneath you? Does he have to take that idol that you have away? Does he have to take that relationship that you have away? Does he have to take that child away? Does he have to take that job you have away or that home? So that you might love him rather than place that other person or thing before God. 
What is it God desires of us? He desires that we come and we, what? Have a heart that loves Him above all other things. And when God evaluates a church, He evaluates and He looks into the heart of the people. And He doesn't say, how many programs do you have? How many, how many uh, kids do you have? Or whatever it might be. Or how many pastors do you have? Or how interesting is the guy up every Sunday? No, He says, what is the heart of the people? Do they love me? Do they really love me or not? Like they once did. That's what God calls us to. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I think of the song that we sing. I could sing of your love forever. For your love endures, reaches throughout all of the earth. And yet our heart, Father, our love for you sways so easily. So, Father, I pray that you would look into the hearts that are here. For you can see each and every person. And you know where they're at. You know, Father, if they truly have a passion for you or not. You know, Father, whether or not they have compromised their faith. You know, Father, whether or not their walk with you is righteous, that they strive to be holy. You know, Father, whether or not they love you. I pray, O God, that your grace would be poured out on their life to draw them back to you. And, Father, may they come, come in repentance if they are not. And decide today is the day that they will walk with you. Today is the day that they will make things right with you. Today is the day, Father. For we know, Lord, that sin robs us of the joy of our salvation. And we pray, O God, that you would restore that joy to those who have lost it. And may the Bible, may your word, may fellowship, May the things of you be ever so sweet and fresh once more. Breathe in new life, Father, even as we gather to sing our praises to you. Breathe in new life. May we not fear, but may we praise you with all of our heart. In Jesus' name, amen.